No doubt the facts have been exaggerated. Well. Hey, Internet, good morning. You know what, though? I could turn the light on here. There it is. Ah, oh, light. Classic professional video lighting from the overhead lamp in the closet. What more could you want out of life? Oh, hope you didn't hear that. <laughs> I'm hungry. <laughs> All right, so uh, I'm going to try not to hit that screen and hit you as much as I can today, but you have to forgive me. It's a new setup. I, used, I usually had it on the side, and that made it easier to ignore myself. I suppose... I, I, did I get distracted and never really say the bit about how you know how it is? Like if there's a screen and you're on it, like if there's a picture, if there's a picture and you're in it, what do you look at first? Everybody else? And maybe there's like two of you out there. You're like, yeah, of course I do. But the rest of us, we're sinners. <laughs> and so we look at ourselves first. I'm not, I'm not lauding this or saying this is great. I'm saying it, I just did it again. It's really, really frustrating once you realize this about yourself and then there's like Humanly speaking, no way to stop it from happening, right? That you just are that selfish. And you can you can bend it. You can put like like shackles on it so that you don't let it get out and start hurting others. But inside, it's always still there. Um, and what's frustrating to me then is that if you know that and you, and you know what's going on, every time I do this, right? I got it. You're like, oh, there he is. He's being narcissistic again. <laughs> I just did it. <laughs> it's impossible. So now that you know, now that you know, you can you can laugh at my sin and mock me if you like. But that's all right. I'll stand on grace. So that's kind of where maybe we're gonna go with questions. But let's see. We're gonna start with this though. Uh, dealing with rhythm and music. So I left off last time, and then with the the podcast, and actually the next podcast come out with uh, Will Whedon. We're also gonna talk about this a bit with you know how much of the issue with people thinking that liturgical worship is boring has more to do with the fact that we don't like singing or we don't know how to sing or we don't know the tunes to our songs or our musicians don't know the tunes to our songs and not anything to do with actual reverence or even necessarily the organ itself. Uh, it's more about, you know, what our Where's the rhythm in our music, right? And, and no one's going to like music with no rhythm, right? Almighty Fortress. There's no rhythm. And it's not how it's written. That's not how you're supposed to sing it. That's just what someone who doesn't know what they're doing is doing. God bless them for trying. But, uh, you know, so here, here's a response to that. Uh, regarding the music, I'm not <laughs> – I forgot about that word. I'm not upset is not what it says. You can read what it says. I'm not upset uh, at all about what you said, but I have some insight. The first time that hymn came up after coming to Lutheran Parish, I believe this is the night will soon be ending. Uh, it, it came out so beautifully, I almost choked. Like most men, of course, don't cry, especially in public. Now I bet we are using the same book, same kind of organ, etc. The differences are two, the organist and the prisoners and the choir singing. Well, this is, this is true, right? The musicians and the musical support that takes place has a lot to do with how singable a song is going to be. So... Uh, anecdote time. Uh, senior year of high school, my band instructor had an assistant. The instructor was aging and had been teaching and conducting for decades. When he conducted a particular piece, the band played very well. When the assistant conducted it, it was a disaster. Same song, same band. Right, so, so, so let me catch that, right? So here you have the same group of musicians, high school musicians, but you're pretty good by high school. Yeah. And then you have a conductor who's been doing it for a long time and a guy who's brand new. And the guy who's been doing it for a long time directs a song, and it's beautiful. And then the new guy directs the same song with the same people, and it's not so beautiful. 
as the anecdote to try to show how a group trying to have music in concert right, together, which is what congregational song would be, is going to live or die based on the leader uh, in terms of yeah, how, how in sync <laughs> pop reference uh, they, they actually are. So, same song, same band. He asked me why I thought that was, and we agreed. The season conductor gave some co- subconscious cues. He set the tone of the tempo as much with the baton as without it. And that's interesting, too. So, what are the cues that are being sent? Now is the time to sing, now not. Now, most organists that I've heard, uh, in general in the Missouri Synod, whether you're volunteer or otherwise, are pretty good at knowing, i got to give a cue when you're supposed to start, right? So, there'll be like a little trickle note or something to, to let you know, now is the time to start. But the question is not only to do it with that, but to do it all the way through the piece. You know, when do you pause? Uh, when do you speed up or slow down even? That kind of thing. And, you know, if you got a pro, if you got a, a, a called musician, that's going to be something that you expect, right? And volunteers aren't always going to be able to do that. But then we got we to gotta acknowledge that the reason is not the liturgy that people are having trouble singing. The reason is not how hard the song is. Right? The reason is how well it's being taught or how well it's being led. And on that edge, being taught, I haven't done this as much here recently because uh, I've been preaching longer, and so i got to keep the, the announcements as short as I can. But uh, I have made efforts uh, in the past to to teach songs if I know we haven't sung them for a while or if I know they're new or if I know they're difficult. So we'll actually sing them before the service. And that way you have this kind of attempt to, to draw everybody together. So anyhow, this, I thought this point was really interesting, though. Just like us, every organist has their favorites, which can be good or bad, too. This is really, really insightful comment. And the point is the organist, even being very skilled, may provide confusing cues that diminish the grandeur of the hymns. So if the organist doesn't like the hymn, no one's going to like it. They can't because the organist isn't going to play it like it's good, right? Like, I don't know how to say – if you don't like the dish of food you're cooking, like you're like, oh, this is gross – like it's not going to be the best it can be then, will it? Like you're, you're not going to put your heart into it. And so if, if, if you don't know the hymn and don't like the hymn, uh, that's going to have a major effect on how the congregation hears the hymn. So especially with new hymns, if you're an organist and you're, and you're in the process of bringing new music to the church, you got to work hard to like it. <laughs> uh, try to like it. You can't not like it right away because it'll show and then no one will like it. Now, maybe, maybe it's really bad. Maybe there are bad pieces, but. Uh, it's the natural condition for the organists and singers. I'm not saying that your organists or prisoners are just bad at making music. No, and I don't think they are. Uh, I think we're all – I think the Missouri Senate as a whole, so I'm calling us all out. I think we're all a grand mediocre. Uh, we're, we're very good on the mediocre scale. Like we're at the top of mediocre. Like you, you don't get better mediocre than us. But the number of excellent places are fewer and further between, and it has a lot to do with a couple of things. Pain – musicians <laughs> pay someone a hundred bucks you know four times a month it's not a lot of money to inspire you to be the best in the world <laughs> it's not a salary it's not healthcare, right so so a paid musician just it takes it to a different level it takes it from uh you know bush league to pro so that's one thing but then training is another part of it so not only are they trained but who trained them where were they trained that kind of thing uh are, are they trained to perform or are they trained to lead uh, are they trained to um uh to fuse together present and past or are they trained to repristinate the past and those answers will have a lot to do with it as well so 
Uh, I, and I'm, I'm talking whole Missouri Synod now. Uh, with that said, so if you hear me say uh, the best mediocre we can be, and you're like, that's insulting. Well, I don't think it should be. I don't think that's insulting at all. I think it's amazing that with almost an entirely volunteer workforce of organists in the Synod, if you, if you took all the organ players in the whole Synod that play every Sunday morning, they're, you're going to have 90% are volunteers. They're getting paid, but not salaried, right? So they're like stipended volunteers. Yeah? With a workforce that is at that extension, right, at that level, many of whom never were trained to play the organ. They were just piano players or maybe had a little bit of keyboard once and someone found out and now you're playing, right? Given that fact that we're as good as we are, I think is phenomenal. It's a, it's a, it's a testimony to our piety and our devotion and our desire to be faithful. So if you hear me saying the, the best mediocre we could be and you think that's offensive, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. You're, you're, you're too hung up on yourself and your need to be perfect, first off, uh, and, and not able to stand on the grace of, of it's okay to be mediocre sometimes. You're never going to get past mediocre if you can't say it's okay to be mediocre. You're not going to be able to grow if you're going to insist you're the best you are now. It's, it's, that's, that's just kind of silly. So I, I say our, our devotion has been in the right place and it's had a result. But now the question is, can we work smarter rather than harder on this in some way, right? Uh, can we not just bang our head against the brick wall, can we find the sledgehammer and hit it? Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, yeah that, that would be the thing. So, you know, he's a solution. He's not sure. Uh, you know, get a few volunteers to work with the organist. This will give them a chance to perfect their style. Yeah, maybe. I, I don't know. I don't have a solution necessarily. Uh, I'm just trying to generate the conversation. And in some ways, I'm just having the conversation in my own head. So um, we're going to keep going with a couple of these to get through them here. Uh, this is in response to, and this is an ongoing conversation with one of you out there who, uh, you know, I think you were initially a bit offended at my insularity comments, but we've, we've worked it out, and, and now we're continuing to talk about you know, what it means to strive to love being Lutheran without having to bang a drum that has Luther's face on it, uh, and instead is, is really about loving the scriptures, right? And I'm gonna, I, I can't say this enough. What is, what is Lutheran? Is being Lutheran, as you define that, the first thing you say is it's holding to the Book of Concord. Or the first thing you say is it's holding to the Augsburg Confession, then I think to some extent you're missing the point, and you're missing the point even more if the first thing you say is uh, it's following the teachings of, of Martin Luther. If you were to say it's believing in justification by grace alone through faith alone for the sake of Christ alone, you're closer to the mark. You're much closer to the mark, right? Because all of that stands upon a trust in Scripture alone. Yeah. So, so to be Lutheran is to believe that the Scriptures left to us by the New Testament church, teach us justification, uh, acceptance, the excusing, the absolution of all sinners as a gift to humanity by grace to be received as a promise, which means you just got to believe that it's true. And this is accomplished in Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ. That all the scriptures teach and testify to this reality, and in this way they are also inspired and without error, holding us in that, well, in that ark, right, in that covenant. Um, mixing my metaphors there. <clears throat> that's what being Lutheran is. And everything else that's around it culturally should serve that. And my contention for the last two months, three months, and maybe go further back. I mean, if you listen to my podcast and you heard me <laughs> do the, the talk in 2015 from issues, et cetera, I was making the case conference on postmodernism. It wasn't like I wasn't saying the same thing. I just didn't use the word insularity and call it the LCMS by name. Uh, 
all of the other pieces of culture that we have around us, if they are not serving our trust in the scriptures, giving us Jesus as a gift of grace to help us believe firmly that we can't die, then they're stopping it. Right? There's no neutrality. There's no, there's no neutrality in first article things. Uh, there's nothing that doesn't do anything. <laughs> That's just silly. Everything does something. Right? Even if it's, if it's minor, it still is doing something. So when they all add up, now what is Lutheran? If those cultural pieces that we cling to don't hold us in Jesus, then they're not Lutheran. Or then Lutheran is something that we don't want to be, if that's what Lutheran is. If Lutheran is just blood sausage and celebrating some guy putting stuff on a doorway, then then you don't want to be a Lutheran. Not really. Yeah? So, somebody go take that quote, you don't want to be a Lutheran. And take it out of context and go crazy with it because you put it on a meme. That would be great. <laughs> oh, stop it, stomach. Okay, so awakening. So in response to this, right, one of you has come back with this. Countless times I've said that most Lutherans don't know why they have various groups, including our Sunday school classes. We have such a heritage and it gets lost on the comfortable. So how do we awaken? This is what I want to focus on. How do we awaken? This is my question. The desire to learn, guard, share the truth that we have while still resting in our comfort and doctrine and faith. In the comfort our doctrine and faith allow us is the crux of the problem. I completely agree. <clears throat> it's the tension between justification and the new obedience to some extent. It's our discomfort as conservative liturgical Lutherans with talking about good works or the, the new life in Christ as a fair reaction and result of the ever-present opinion of the law that's pushing us off the other side into whatever you want to call it, pietism, legalism, evangelicalism. I mean, they're all kind of the same beast. They're the birds of the same feather, you know, uh, trusting in the law more than in the gospel. So we don't want to do that. So how, how do we hold people accountable to the law without destroying the gospel? And the tendency is, at least in my opinion, to now I have this heat. Sorry, I just got distracted. I have a heating pad in here, and it's not even on my lap or my feet, and I'm cold. <laughs> uh, our tendency is to do this through some sort of um, uh, mathematical formula for talking. Right? So, so law and gospel is conceived of as a formula rather than as a diagnosis. Now, maybe those terms aren't completely right in in talking about this, but a formula would be something that. Every time you plug in the right pieces to your formula, you get the right answer. Every time, right? It always works. And a diagnosis, a diagnostic tool, is not about plugging in the right pieces. It's about finding out what pieces are there. Uh, it, it's, it's able to help you understand what's actually being said. So I would contend that law and gospel as taught in the confessions, in the formula of Concord particularly, but also by Luther in general, and by Lutherans in general, is a diagnostic tool, not a formulaic tool. It's not there to tell us how to talk. It's to tell us what was said. And then in Walther's Law and Gospel, there is a point at which he says, now, if what was said was this, then that would be outside the formula of Christianity. And if what was said was this, well, that would be inside the formula of Christianity. But he, he was by no means trying to say, you may only talk in this particular way, uh, ever, uh, this order of things. So our struggle then, I think, is that we've tried to answer our fear of getting this question that's on the screen wrong by 
leaning on a formulaic approach to law and gospel and and using Walther a bit as a, as a crutch to defend our belief that we can do this. When, what I love about this question is this word, awaken, is a word that Walther used all the time. He liked this word. And we don't like this word. And I know why. I don't like it. It scares me. It's like, wait a minute, that's that's Methodism, you know? <laughs> uh, and and the, the, it's such a challenge that so many of the words in English have been defined or used or abused by heterodox or heretic bodies. And so those words eventually come to mean something other than what we want them to mean. So every time you would use it, you have to say, well, by that, I don't mean this. I mean this other thing that's a secondary meaning to the word. And yeah, I sound like an English nerd because I am, but I think it really matters. If you're a people of the book, that means you're a people of words, and that means the words you use matter. If you think your culture is not formed by the words you use, that just means you're being formed by somebody else and you don't even know it's happening. When the liberal agenda or the progressive agenda for America in the 60s and 50s really decided that they were going to take on the establishment by going outside the establishment, the way they did it was by changing the terminology that they used. They played with different words. And to this day, both parties, Democrat and Republican, this is a major part of what they do is they think about what is the first meaning of that word. And if it's the wrong thing, even if it's just the wrong flavor, they don't use it. They, they, they shift it to try to impact public understanding. So we have to recognize that's how language works. That's a first article reality of language. So then with that being true, knowing that English is not a Lutheran language, it's a – well – it's kind of reformed through uh, through King James, but it is more deeply a Methodistic language. And and he had you know uh, the reformed were not originally in England, but they became the Church of England or influenced it widely. And then out of them comes Wesley. So Wesley's got uh, reformed roots, and out of Wesley is revivalism. The Baptists come out of there too, by the way, out of the Church of England. And uh, so out of that Anglo. Anglican English church, the language of American Christianity gets established as terms, right? And and we're stuck with it a little bit. So when Walther was talking about awakening, he was using German. So it, it meant something different just by itself. Like they would have known because uh, German was kind of founded on Lutheran thinking as a language, then it carried some of that weight. And, and English just doesn't do that for us. And so that's a lot of what personally I'm wrestling with and asking. It's like, okay, so we when we translated so much of what we believe as 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 Lutherans, as those who hold to Scripture alone teaching Jesus, who's a gift of grace for the sake of our faith, which the Augsburg Confession and the Book of Concord rightly confess, when we first translated that, we did it like Germans, <laughs> which is we got a dictionary out and we found the most precise word we could <clears> – <throat> We shall engineer the translation, uh, and they, you know, and we, and we made it as 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 woodenly true as we could. But the problem is uh, lost in translation here a little bit, and that's that's only doubled as the language has taken on a life of its own in the age of hypermedia, where I I personally believe that what you would normally see happening to a language over a century is now happening to English in in. in I'm not going to say five years, uh, but but at a at an amplified or an exponentially increased rate. So over a century, any language is going to lose words and gain words, and or it's a dead language. Latin's the only language that doesn't do this, and French is dying. So that because they won't do this, right? So you're either going to lose words or gain words, and uh, that that happens gradually. And this is why when you read Shakespeare, it's so different from what you read today, and that's only a couple hundred years ago. So. Uh, 
what I think the the hyper influx of over communication which the internet has brought into existence is doing is it is it is compounding or it is it is exponentially increased the rate at which language is changing, and that's why people you know the the, the pious elders among us shake their heads and 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 say these kids and their new words are right and it's like okay but but those are the words that are going to be used. So, you know, you can sit there and say it's their fault that they don't understand what you're saying, or you can be the missionary and say, I need to understand what they're saying so I can say what they need to hear. Yeah. Uh, so awakening now in general, uh, doesn't have to be called awakening. I don't know what the right word to use to, to talk about this, uh, to inspire, <laughs> right. Uh, to inspire a desire to learn our faith, like, that's a very English way of speaking, right? Uh, to inspire a Lutheran spirituality. Huh? Can you say it without saying the word Lutheran and it still be okay? Can you inspire a spirituality of the cross? Can you inspire a spirituality of grace under Christ? Yeah. Or on Christ, even better. Or in Christ, even better. Yeah. Uh, how do you do that? And my answer to this, am I talking about this here is is confessing my own belief. Well, it has a lot to do with how you talk. It has a lot to do with your culture being hungry for the word or not hungry for the word is going to have a lot to do with the words. And I'm not going to blame God's word for our poor translation of it. So don't tell me that just because I think the NIV or the ESV uh, isn't inspirational, generally speaking, because of its heritage of translating in a certain style or uh, or theory. Don't tell me that means I don't think the word of God is inspirational. I think it's very inspirational. I think that we have put more trust in our in our translations and even our tradition of translation than in the word itself. And most of the Christians they're not they're not a party to this particular sin because their trans, the translations are being done by their tradition. By, by their heritage, theologically. And ours ours is not. Now, someone's pointed out recently the EHV, which I haven't spent much time in. So it's, it's a group of Lutherans trying to do a translation of the Bible. That's good. Like, why why haven't we done that? We're busy t- translating the Bible, you know, in other, other countries, but we've never done it for ourselves. That's odd. We just took the Reformed one. That won't impact us at all. And, we, and then we wonder why we sing their songs. <laughs> Anyhow, so so my point is that if we're just going to talk to our neighbors about Christianity, then we have to understand what Christianity is. We've got to love the talking itself. We've got to love the words. And part of that's going to be with understanding the words. And part of understanding the words is going to be using words that make sense, using words that are still our words. And it's not as though justify and justification never gets used in the culture, but it doesn't get used very much. And it's not the only way to talk about the exact same thing. No, the exact same thing. So, and, and that applies to a lot of different pieces here. Uh, so, um, huh, why did I just get that right now? Text message. All right. So, uh, how do we awaken it? I think it becomes, it starts by being intentional with our language, right? I'm not saying change it. I'm not saying get rid of it. I'm saying be intentional with it, be intentional with it. Or when I say, when I say change, not change it, I don't want to change it as in make it say something different. I want it to say what it's supposed to mean, but that mean might mean different sounds, right? So, um, If I say the dish on the stove is cool, or if I say the dish on the stove is cold, both of them mean the same thing. This is like one of the great strengths of English, by the way, 
is that it can do this. It has so many different ways to say stuff. There's not only one way. German's a little more only one way-ish. Not entirely, but it kind of leans that way. My understanding of it, at least. That's why they make these giant long words. <laughs> you can't. There's no synonym for that 10-syllable word. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, so we can be intentional about the meaning without clinging to the sounds. And uh, that doesn't mean you never teach the older words uh, or that they, they never become part of your, your culture or your language. But if you just insist that there's only one way to talk, uh, then you, you don't know your your language, on your particular language. If you are an English speaker and you think there's only one way to say things, you're not a very good English speaker, <laughs> much less writer. Or you're in some sort of denial that believes that our translation of the doctrine is the inspired and without error thing rather than the doctrine itself, which is what the scriptures say, that we should always be in the in the constant process of translating, yeah? uh, renewing it every morning. Hearing it again and again, uh, and if we can't hear it, then then it's not. It could be the person who's listening's fault, or it could be the fact that we just are refusing to actually say it. I have found in my own personal conversation with all of you all about this. You know, we like to talk law and gospel, but if someone brings a little law, like first article, here's language, here's how it works, and we're not doing very well, man, do we get offended by that? <laughs> I tell you. Uh, so uh, yeah. Rest, but how do we do it without losing the grace? Right. Well, this is just it. Um, how do we not lose the grace? Well, we got to trust in Jesus to not take it away. <laughs> you don't get to keep the grace by works. All right. So here we go. Uh, and same same uh, writer, but I thought this was an interesting uh, tangent. So she said at the end, I've ran along long enough. Last thing before I go, your parenting series with issues, etc. Any plans to do it in book form? I am almost done with my first go through of them and I'm going to do a second and start writing it down, but there's a plan in the works. I can save my time, just an FYI and Air Force Brat stuff there. So, um, I'm going to come back to this for that answer. So the parenting book, um, yeah, I mean, there, there sort of is a plan. Uh, the plan involves my wife a little bit and, uh, life and, writing always aren't always friends always i said always a few times or didn't i um so uh she she had expressed this idea to me that she thought it was worth having published i don't know two years ago and so i was like great and we have a transcript made of the first episode and uh she was going to go back and uh, do some editing on it but then she got excited and wanted to do like her own part to it and i thought that's great we'll have a like, back and forth thing going on uh but then full-time mom with five kids and it just isn't it isn't on the agenda as a habit and i don't say that to condemn her at all because i have this book if you follow my newsletter you know i've got this fiction book i really want to write next and i haven't touched it in two weeks and just just haven't done it and there's all sorts of like reasons for that uh the way we subconsciously destroy our art our attempts at art out of fear and things like that no doubt are part of this for both of us probably uh but look at that i'm looking at myself again go away me um, but, uh, so I, I don't know how that book ever gets done. Uh, I would like it to get done, but I don't know. And then there's another side to this too, where it's sort of like, you know, how, what right do I have to write a book on parenting while my kids are still in the home? I mean, I guess in some ways I'm in the, I'm in the thick of it, but in other ways, whatever answers I would give you haven't 
in, entirely been proven yet. Uh, they seem to be proving themselves, but at the same time, they're you know, bound to fail uh, to some extent. And I mean, I believe that that the Bible teaches you can parent, that it's not just a lost cause. It's not just, well, I guess they're going to do whatever they do. I mean, I, I don't buy that. I and mean, if you disagree, then go listen to the series. Uh, I don't buy that because the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches authority. The Bible teaches uh, faithful and, and dutiful children, uh, particularly for pastors. And so, uh, uh, but that doesn't mean that it's not, uh, each individual doesn't have the capacity to destroy their own faith or to rebel as well. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot there. And if I were to sit down and try to write a book on parenting, I would probably even not be able to stick with what I did on the on the issues thing. So so the answer there probably is just to transcribe them at some point. And just uh and but but then that's where and I, I one of you reached out to me on this and I still gotta get back to you a little bit on it. Actually I should say two of you on two different levels are reaching out on this kind of stuff and thank you for that. Uh if those kind of transcription projects are gonna get done at some point I, I have to have help doing it or I have to have enough supplementary income that I can throw money at it and not worry about not having money somewhere else. And, you know, the initial transcription isn't necessarily the problem uh, because you, uh, you just have one of these, you know, cheap computer transcribers do it. And it's, it's like 20 bucks or 15 bucks for the thing. Uh, but if you want like the, the high level transcription done, which, which gets all the theological words, you're looking at upwards of a hundred bucks or more, probably more, uh, for, for the hour. And that adds up pretty quick. Um, and then you got to, either way, you got to go back and edit it yourself. And again, that's, that's just time not writing for me, right? That's time not doing some other project that I, that I feel compelled to do. And I'm trying to strike a balance between the projects I know you want and you, and we need, there's a lot of them. <laughs> uh, and, and those ones that, uh, like my soul hungers to achieve. So I, I remember, I don't think we talked about this already a while back. Somebody heard me saying something about, you know, I couldn't do that because then I wouldn't be me. And they left a comment. I say, you know, who are you serving? You yourself or Jesus? It's like, oh, thank you, lady. Thank you so much for the love. Um, yeah, I'm really trying to serve Jesus and I'm trying to serve you. But I also acknowledge that humanity is such that slaves eventually don't want to do their job <laughs> or they don't do it as well as they could because they're beat down. And if you don't have any joy in what you're doing or it's not inspiring to you to do it, you're not going to do a very good job. So I, I, what I try to do is balance, if I can, the things I know need to be done and should be done and are valuable and are good. I do have an interest in with the things I really want to do and give myself a little bit of that ice cream, right? Not, not that I actually give myself ice cream. I really don't. But to in the workload, carve out the niche for the thing you you have fun doing so that you can be inspired to keep doing the other stuff. And as a result, I just, I mean, I have the number of things that are like a, a parenting book, uh, you know, projects that are there in my backlog that we could really use that don't necessarily have to be done by me. Uh, but certainly, um, I could do them. Are they, am I the only one who could do them? No, uh, others could. And for that reason, I'm trying to focus on the things that I'm the only one that can do them. Uh, and, or, or at least so far as I can see, like my particular niche on this thing is, uh, there's not anybody else or not, I should say not anybody. There are not many others that can do that thing. And maybe parenting is that as well. I don't know. I don't think so. I really don't think so. Uh, and particularly if we're talking, getting the transcription work done and, and editing that. I mean, that could be done as a side project by anybody who wants to do it. Um, but you got to want to do it, right? 
and no one wants to do anything unless they get paid. Right? Right? Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of it. But if you want to take your own notes, take your own notes. That's fantastic. Uh, I wouldn't hang around waiting for the book. Um, as much as I'd love to have it have it out there, uh, it's just not high enough on the agenda. I got I got Book of Hours, which I still haven't touched that in two months. Um, my Book of Hours, and I got um, my my fiction book. And in theory, now I've got two potential next theological books, and they're both. Uh, I just can't get to them. I don't know. Because I, I can't get to the fiction, and I, I'm prioritizing the fiction this time. I told myself after the, after the last book, which comes out in February, um, that next time you get to do fiction. And until you do that, you don't get to do anything else as a primary thing because it's been a dream for a long, long time, and uh, i, I got to stop putting it off. So anyway, that, that gives us that. Let's see here. So I'm going to come back and see what you all been chatting about because I haven't been keeping an eye on that uh, and then we got some other questions we can we can run into. So, um, you guys are talking about baptism. Uh, that's interesting. Okay. Oops, I pulled that away. So where'd that come from? Where'd that response come from? Uh, EHV English Heritage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were talking about that. Let's see. Let's get some more space here. I can see more comments. Uh, da, da, da. Water symbolizes. Does it say that? All right. So. You guys are debating First Peter three in translations. Um, so I would say Conan that uh, this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you is actually pretty good in terms of it, it doesn't make it a work you do. It's the other way around. Um, baptism saves you. The symbol in the water there is the flood. The flood is the symbol of baptism. And what does the flood do? It kills. And yet through it in Christ, eight are saved, right? Which is the whole point of the verse. Uh, and so the, I don't know that that's necessarily wrong. Um, now the, the bit about an appeal to God for a good conscience and a pledge of a clear conscience toward God. That's where I think the, the challenge comes, um, in, in the language. Now the, the way that the, Syntax of the sentence works. It is something that is us before God. Okay? Us toward God. But what are we reading into this word appeal or pledge? And what I would submit is that that word's fairly technical. It is closer to a covenant. So, uh, but a covenant of a clean conscience before God. Or, but a contract for a clean conscience before God. And that, that understanding is not as though you're not involved in this covenant, right? You're involved as the receiver of the covenant. And now it is yours. And it's before God. And it's the declaration of a clean conscience. If you went so far as to say, but the promise of a clean conscience before God or toward God, um, that would be, that'd be going too far, I think. It still catches the real idea though, because it doesn't turn it into law. But the symbolizes stuff, uh, maybe that wasn't your focus. The symbolizes stuff isn't bad. How'd you guys get on this? Um, you're in the EHV. Okay. So corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. So corresponding to the flood, right? Yeah. Which the flood is the symbol, even though it's real. Yeah. Um, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the guarantee of a good conscience before God. Okay. That's all right. 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 Um, huh. I wonder what their, um, their study, like their, the, if they, if you got into their scholarship of why they went with guarantee and how they proved that was a viable translation, I don't remember seeing that word, but I'm, but no, by, by no means the scholar these guys are. 
who did this. Uh, but I don't remember that being an option. I think I would have latched onto that pretty hard. But I like it. Guarantee you have a good conscience. I think I would have said clean conscience. Good is such a boring word. Uh, clean conscience before God through the resurrection of Jesus. Yeah, I like it. I I am probably going to start using that thing at some point in the next year, whenever I can figure out how to track it into my system, uh, just to explore it. Uh, you know, a, a new translation is hard to adopt, especially when you have a church that you have to take care of that uses a different one. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so cool. Um, so that was that you guys are also chit chatting about, let's see. Um, what is your opinion about changing hymn lyrics? I.e. speak oft with the Lord, abide in him only to speak often with God, find rest in him only. That's interesting. I think it depends. Uh, I'm all for changing hymn lyrics sometimes. And especially if they don't make sense. So I think that's the main thing is the theory in like the 80s when we were like hip and cool with all our changes um, was if it's old, get rid of it. If it's – it's got to be new and if it's difficult, get rid of it. It's got to be vanilla, right? So you would take read, mark, er, learn and inwardly digest and you would turn it into read, mark, learn and take to heart. Oh, so sweet. Now, the thing about that is it, it – let me give you an alternative theory. My theory would be not to change it because it's old or to change it even because it's difficult. I would say you change it when it doesn't make any sense anymore. <laughs> yeah, not, not just difficult but like obtuse and there's a difference between I have to learn a word and that word no longer exists or is used. And it's as simple as when you read the sentence, does it make sense? Or you're like, uh, you know, when, when the KJV mentions the unicorns, right? Like, like that one, like we should probably change that one, <laughs> right? Oh, sorry. My shoulder is hurting this morning for some reason. Um, so, uh, you know, speak oft with the Lord. Who doesn't know what that means? Everybody does. A child would still know what that means. They'd be able to figure that out. That's not that hard. Uh, speak off with the Lord, abide on him only. I mean, that, that, there's nothing hard about that. It's beautiful. It's, it's poetic. So the, the thing about the get rid of the old key, you know, do the new, get to vanilla if you can, because everyone's too stupid to, to hear anything or learn anything was effectively a war against poetry in English. Like they, they got rid of the poetry and I'm saying, let's, let's get the poetry. We need the poetry. We need more poetry. We should get rid of the things that don't work in the poetry. Uh, I'm trying. I was thinking about this recently. Oh, I'll, t I'll give you one though. Um, I can't stand this one. Um, there's a oh, what's, what what hymn is this? Um, Fatherland. Oh, I can't think of it. There's, there's a hymn that uh, oh, I can't think of it at all. Anyway, the last line is uh, "Rest in your heaven." I think "Rest in your heaven." And musically, the word heaven doesn't even fit that well with the um, the, the tempo and rhythm at that point or the, the number of notes that are there. It works, but it doesn't work. But paradise would work so much better. Uh, rest in your paradise. It just it just would flow so much better. And I always just want to sing that instead. I'd love to change that. But the trick with changing hymn lyrics is you got to have a whole new hymnal. And I don't want to change our hymnal at all. <laughs> I want our hymnal to stick around for a while. Uh, but, but, you know, this this is... 
this is worth uh, wrestling with. We should be able to translate our hymns, especially if you know that the original translation was done by somebody who uh, obfuscated the actual meaning. So uh, as an example, if you look in your your Lutheran service book at the bottom for the translation, like 60% of our translated hymns are from Catherine Winkworth. God bless the woman and her piety and her zeal and the work she did for the church. I don't want to get rid of any of Catherine Winkworth, Winkworth's work, <clears throat> but neither do I want to pretend that she didn't kind of miss the sacraments sometimes in translations. And I, I remember being shown this, a particular missing of it and its clarity in Wake Awake for Night is Flying. I think it's in the second verse or third verse, and it's kind of there. You can kind of still see it, but in the original, it's like really there. And so things like that should be worth looking at. Yeah. Um, or while we're on the A Mighty Fortress kick, uh, when we're talking about rhythm, you know, there's this big fight between the uh, the rhythmic version and the – it's not called the arrhythmic, whatever. The the one we all like to sing is, is the arrhythmic version. It's not called that, but it's not the rhythmic version. The rhythmic version is Bach, and we don't sing that one. Uh, and they're both in the hymnal. And honestly, I don't particularly love the Bach version more. I I still got my own issues with the whole the whole song, and I don't know what my answer to that is other than just to sing it. But the translation on the Bach version, while it's weaker in some places, like it denies masculinity uh, at, at the end of the of the song, um, is stronger in other places. The way it helps us understand that word alone that yet remains, nor any thanks have for it. Right? Uh, no, I think the the other version says, "No thanks to foes who fear it." Oh, that makes sense suddenly, right? So, uh, you know, things like that uh, could be addressed. But you only can address those when you have a hymnal put together. And you only get a hymnal put together through a committee, through politics. And so you kind of get what you get. Anyway, yeah. But I don't. I think we should be able to, to retranslate hymns carefully and not radically. You don't want to be willy-nilly doing it everywhere. And certainly not just with this idea that if the word oft is in it, you've got to change it to often. No, it, it doesn't make sense. doesn't make sense. There's a couple lines in TLH that don't make sense now. We don't, the words don't even mean what they used to mean. So, um, all right. So going back to this and Ardith is pointing at it, I think, um, I've been discussing about baptism with the Baptist and I am amazed at the different translations deal with first Peter three twenty one, which is the most faithful. Yeah. So again, I kind of gave you that answer, not directly a moment ago. Um, you know, un uh, until the evangelical heritage version, which you put up there, uh, was there, uh, I would have said that none of them really get it great. And even actually, if we go back to that, they're missing something too. Uh, let's see, where is it? Yeah, right here. Um, yeah, I'll explain in a moment. So, so, cause it, it was about the guarantee, right? That's, that's kind of the big piece. And the, the trick is, the struggle is that the syntax of the sentence is about us before God being something or doing something. And if your theology teaches you that you before God is always you doing something to earn grace, then that's what you're going to think that means. And then you're going to put it and you're going to see that, well, baptism saves you and it's a work. Well, that can't be right. And so you're going to change it. So it doesn't mean that, right? But if baptism saves you is something before God that saves you and you believe in grace, 
you don't have to get rid of baptism. You, you're also going to have the option, but no one takes this option unless they already believe the other verses about baptism that saves must mean saves. And so that word guarantee there cannot possibly be something I'm doing to earn grace. It just, it just can't be. That would destroy the whole Bible. So, but, but baptism saving you does not destroy the whole Bible. But see, that's what they think it does. They think it is doing that. They think it's destroying grace. But then they go and they turn baptism into a work that you have to do in order to gain grace. So, you know, it, it's showing the world that you're living the new life and then you got to go prove it and live the new life and grow on the tree of, of, of sanctification and, and uh, abundant life. And so they're, they're, they're stuck in the, in the law, although they're trying to get out of the law with this verse. Uh, no matter how you do it, though, it, the second half of the verse is complicated and even unclear. But the first half of the verse is not complicated and not unclear. So what what I do, what we do, aside from knowing that there's also many other verses that say the same thing as the first half of this verse, just with different words, that baptism does salvation kind of stuff to you. In fact, every verse in the Bible that talks about what baptism does says this kind of stuff. And that's why Baptist friends never talk about those verses. They go to Acts and just show you a baptism happening. I'm like, well, see, it just happened. Therefore, whoa, 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 why don't you go to the thing that tells you what it means? <laughs> um, so every verse says this. So you, you stand on that and you stand on the clarity of the word saves. I mean, there is no way around that word meaning saves. It could mean heals. Baptism now heals you. It could say that. I mean, those are your two options for that word. And uh, uh, and then you, you let that come forward and say, well, I know salvation is by grace, so it can't be because I'm doing a work. It has to be because God's saved me. So what does that word mean? And so you have this word translated here as guarantee, other places as pledge. Well, that word has multiple meanings or edges of meaning in the Greek. And some of them can be a pledge you make or some of them can be you being part of a contract. Okay, well, there you go. You're part of a contract. Now, the part that I would say they, they get wrong here, and I got to give this one to Peter Bender up in Wisconsin. Uh, years ago, he pointed out, uh, not the removal of dirt from the... Oh, oh, body, body, really? So, uh, in Greek, there's two ways to talk about your corporal form. One is soma, and it, it means body. It means uh, a physical being, but there's a certain uh, platonic or... Uh, wider feel to it. So a body of people, right? It can be like a symbolic thing too. And then there's the word sarks. And you can hear the difference. Soma and sarks. And you can hear the difference in English too. Body and flesh. You don't talk about a flesh of people. You talk about a body of people. You talk about a flesh of knowledge. You talk about a body of knowledge. When you get a wound in your arm, you don't get a body wound. You get a flesh wound, right? English really captures it well, the distinction between these things. And then that word is used intentionally by Paul and John in two different ways to distinguish Christianity from other, other thought patterns, other, other religions. So for Paul, he talks about the flesh as a, as a term for your sin, but it's your sin because it's like as close to your flesh as you. Like it's not apart from you. Sin's not something you just do or something that's just rattling around inside you. It's, it's actually one with you. It is a corruption of you, right? Your flesh. It hates you too. It's at war with you. And, you know, the battle between the flesh and the spirit uh, is, is used by him. 
So it's it's a it's a dark word for him. John, the apostle, also sees it as a a darker word or a more earthy word, the kind of word we might be uncomfortable with. And he uses it to emphasize Christ's incarnation. And the word incarnate is the same kind of thing, infleshing. It's not it's not taking on a body, it's enfleshment, right? Incarnate and in red meat. Uh and uh uh so both of them use those words differently uh, to emphasize different things and want a bad thing, want a good thing. So, well, Peter here, you know, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the, from the flesh, from the sarks. Uh, now, how many of us would pick up on that if it just had that here instead of the body? You know, would you, would you say, ooh, what's that mean? Is it just about water hitting the outside of you? Because if you go Pauline with this, although to some extent, John and Paul aren't uh, aren't that far apart. So when Jesus Christ takes on flesh, he takes on the sinful, corrupted nature of mankind. He purifies it by taking it on, but he still takes it on. That's why he, that's why he can die. <laughs> yeah? uh, that's why he's crucified. That's why he, he does, in fact, take on the sins too. He bears the sins. So they're both kind of using it the same way. So, so if either way you want to go with it, if Peter is saying that baptism is not a, merely a removal of filth from the flesh, right? it's not merely removing your sinful condition, but it's also, also the guarantee of a clean and holy consciousness. Yeah. Um, now you're going even deeper on this thing, right? Now, eh, do you have to have that? I don't know. But it should say flesh because that's, that's the word. And why – so here, EHV guys, if you if any of you watch, I'd love to know what your thoughts were because I know you're trying to intentionally rethink the whole thing, right? And yet there you just stuck with the uh, history of tradition. Uh, the only reason to keep that word as body is the history of tradition. There's no real good that I can think of uh, English or translation reason. Maybe there's a textual variant that I don't know about. Um, that's a different thing altogether. All right. So going back down to the bottom of the comments and then I'm going to go – what are we doing for time here? I want to go pick up some of those other ones, see if I can fast hit them. Um, yeah, uh, even the Bach version can be exciting so long as you don't play at one beat every 46 months. Yeah, well, that, this is just it, man. That one should be harder to do that because it looks like it's supposed to go faster as music. But you're right. I mean, you slow it down and it's, um, it's not that great. Uh, TLH, Lutheran Service Book. Is, it, is this in regard to which hymnal we should keep? Um, I mean, the one that well, the one that we have. So we as a church body have the LSB as our official one. And I think we we do well if we were all just using it. If we all just use it together for 30 years, then we could get a new one and update it even more and go back to more old stuff if you want, right? Uh, TLH is fine. The print's really bad. It just needs a print update for Pete's sake. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's some other issues I have with it, but uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I'm not I'm not on a crusade to go back to uh, TLH. Uh, not at all. In fact, uh, podcast again is going to come out uh, with with Will Whedon. I think this was in the first hour. There's two hours. I'm going to split them up over two weeks. But uh, he was talking about how TLH changed the Gloria Patri in uh, our Gloria in Excelsis uh, in in the Divine Service. You know, glory be to the Father. It's not the way it was before 1941. No, it's not the German way. Would you believe that? That's Scottish. Glory be to the Father and to the Son. It's Scottish. 
I like it. Uh, but and I can't sing for you the German one. He sang it on the podcast, and it's it's like the bot the bot the ball. It's it's like very, it's not polka, but it's like happy German. Um, very different, very different. So I mean, just you just can't you just can't refuse to believe that you live in time. <laughs> I know we want to try. Um, okay, I got you, I got you. So I, I got the wrong question from you. Cool. Um, all right. So let's see here. <sighs> I don't like not being able to monitor, but we're going to do it anyway. Uh, there's a screen. Oh, look. Oh, no, no, because when I go to the other one, it won't monitor. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. That's fine. Here we go. Uh, but what if I did this? I'll still be able to monitor if I do this. I can go to the side, but then you won't see it all quite the same way. All right. Go out. Mad questions. Oh, wrong one. That one. All right. Look at all these. What shall we do? We'll just go in order. Um, I have a friend uh, about to leave his non-denominational church, formerly Baptist, because they are moving toward a congregational-led church body. He says congregational-led churches are a... He's moving toward or away from? Now I'm confused. He says congregational-led churches are a byproduct of American government. True. Uh, and, and that lifelong elders should decide everything in the church. Maybe. Uh, I usually think of Acts 2, 42, 47 as our example of the church. Are his thoughts on elders biblically based? Meh, not really. Uh, how should I respond to him? Thanks for all you guys do. So the trick about church government is that the Bible doesn't say anything about it. And most church bodies are caught up trying to make the Bible say something about it. And they do that by taking this thing or this thing, often an example or just a bit of history that happened in one place. And they say, well, that's the thing that's always got to be there. But then they have to ignore some other things that happened in other places. No, that one doesn't count. Um, The only thing that the Bible says you have to do is have good order. Paul's very clear about that. It must be done decently and in good order. That's it. Oh, you need the office of the ministry. You have to have a preacher. Where you have a preacher, you will have hearers. So you also have to have hearers that's kind of a, you can assume it a little bit. The preacher standing by himself in a cornfield isn't a church. Eh, duh, right? So you have to have a preacher and hearers in good order. If you want to bring a hymn, that's fine. He says you can sing. Yeah, but that's even that's not commanded. It, it's it's the good order of preaching. Yeah, in the, be in the scriptures together. So uh, Sasa, Herman Sasa is very enlightening on this, where he, he, he just points out this, what I just said, uh, that there is no proper form of the Christian congregation as we're trying to um, uh, governmentalize it. Now, Walther's proper form of a Christian congregation is, addresses different issues. It's like, what should be going on at a church that's a real healthy church? Uh, as opposed to saying, this is the correct government God gave us. There is no correct government God gave us aside from the preaching of the word. So then, what do you do? Well, what you've got to not do is say, there's only one way to do it. <laughs> As soon as you do that, guess what you've done? You have set up a golden cow. So when you say the only way to run the church is lifelong elders who make every decision, now you have a golden cow. I actually like the idea of lifelong male headship, those who are trained to defend the church uh, through um, uh, policy, basically, uh, a policy-based leadership. 
I like that idea in our present age, but I will by no means say it's the only way to be the church. Uh, what does he do with when they just gave the money to the apostles? This is the thing that just it just kills me. Like you really could do this. I, I, I said this like two nights ago. We're having a constitutional conversation starting up at my church and I, you know the, the team that's supposed to study it together. And I said this two nights ago. Like, look, don't do this. But you could. But don't. You could just take the offering plate and hand it to the pastor and say, Pastor, do what you will with it. We'll be back next week. And that would be Christianity. It's what they did initially. It worked for a while. Uh, the only problem with it is unfaithful pastors, which are bound to happen eventually. Uh, so, but, but, you know, some congregations out there, not in the Missouri Synod, still do this. Um, oh, how did that just happen? Has this been there? No. Why don't it just happen? I just saw something click. Um, some congregations uh, in the world do this today. They're, they're mom and pop churches, usually often assemblies of God kind of thing or, or ethnic churches. But and I'm not saying it's right either. Don't get me wrong. It's like, in fact, I don't think it's a good idea. I think it's 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 very dangerous because uh, it, 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 it encourages the pastor as a fallen person to try to do what he can to make the money flow better, right? Although there's always some of that. Uh, you can't avoid that uh, that temptation. Temptation is always going to be there. So, um, so anyway, point being, there is no, there is no prescribed permanent form of the congregation. Rather, there is the commandment to find good order and pursue it. So, is it true that whatever congregational led church body means, uh, voters assembly? Is it true that this is an innovation from the seventeen eighteen hundreds? that some people at that time thought was a bad idea and would lead to problems. And they said, here's why. Um, yeah, it is. Uh, could it work? Yeah, it could. It did for a while in some places. It requires certain things. It requires that people understand how voters' assemblies work, that they, they can function within like an, an educated political climate, i.e. Robert's Rules of Order. Uh, it requires that they also have an education in uh, kind of business or uh, life management, which people in the 1800s had to have in different ways than we do now. They didn't have you know, jobs quite the same way. You were kind of self-reliant a little more. Uh, it requires regular attendance. Like you can't just go when you feel like it. Uh, and I, I would say that, you know, forgive me for this one. I am by no means one who thinks that women's suffrage is a sin. Uh but I do think that voters' assemblies work better when you just have guys there. There's just there's just more peace in the congregation, and that, I think that's the the design that God gave us. And you can give me all your reasons why it's a bad idea. That's fine. And I'm not gonna. It's not my goal to get rid of it. But uh, I, I think that if you're gonna complain about congregational-led churches, then maybe you should ask what changed before everything fell apart. And women's suffrage was one of the big changes that came in. And back before that, it was it was functioning pretty well. Uh, so, eh, you know, I mean, there's, it's a complex issue, but, uh, I don't think there's a reason to say that Christians don't have the ability to govern themselves. That, that's weird. You know, in, in, in a fallen world to make decisions about your building. I mean, how much governance is really going on in a church, in a church body, in a church, in a congregation? What are you really doing? You're taking care of a building and you're paying the salary of a staff. That's, that's all you're really doing, right? And you're trying to market trying to market your spiritual store. Yeah. So, you know, we want to talk about things that have influenced us 
it's not so much that we're in this voters assembly led culture it's that we're in a <laughs> uh, we're in a market driven culture uh, that's impacted us a great deal and i don't think you can get rid of that either it's where we are the the church's structure is always a reflection of the culture around it this is part of why the leaders of the church did look like kings in the era of kings and act like kings in the era of kings so we don't live in the era of kings anymore. We live in the era of uh, entrepreneurship and independent leadership and uh, and market marketing, marketing your ideas. And so to some extent, we're going to reflect that whether we like it or not. We're either going to be bad at it or good at it. And then so you know, with that, this idea that it's all going to run through the voters, um, well, how, if you see the voters as the market, itself the market is not outside the market's inside uh, then that's not necessarily such a such a problem because should not the store want the customers to receive what the store is supposed to give them that's why they come and so if they're there to buy and forgive the terminology but it, it, it it's an analogy it's a symbol if they're there to buy the word of God then why would it be wrong to regularly ask them, or have them decide that uh, you're faithful in giving it to them. Yeah? But on the flip side of it, it also gives them the power to change the store <laughs> just because they don't like it. So there's all sorts of issues with it. Uh, it's super complex. But I don't think that to just put it in the hands of 10 guys, 8 guys, is going to save you. <laughs> it's like, I mean, this is such a, a history of governance in, in terms of Western Civ. Like, well, we'll try it with a republic. Well, it's not working. Well, let's try it with an emperor. Well, it's not working. Let's try it with three emperors working together. They can, they'll keep each other. Oh, that didn't work either. <laughs> let's try it where we vote them in and vote them out. Oh, it didn't work either. Yeah, they all they all collapse. And the worst thing you can do is put your faith in any of them. Don't put your trust in princes. And that's what I see him doing. And you're putting your trust in princes. Put your trust in the scriptures. And then if you think that the best structure for your time is is uh, lifelong appointed fathers of the church, which I actually do think that's the best structure for our times personally. Uh, uh, great, but it's, it's not, it's, it would be for the good of the church, not for the necessity of the church. And he's making an argument for the necessity of the church. That's the danger there. Uh, okay. So cool stuff. Let's see. Uh, delete. Yes. I want to delete it. Why would you ask me if I want to delete it? Oh, I got your name on here. Oh, well, hopefully you're okay with this one, Justin. Uh, no, it's not. It's from Gabriel. That's interesting. And your email's even there. Oh, this is bad. I had my daughter do this. And, well, Gabriel, you got to deal with it. You get, A lot of people have your email because I know you send them to people. <laughs> um, can you do a review of Justin Peters? Oh, that's why. Uh, Reformed Baptist talk about child baptism, especially the last part from the Do Not Judge conference in which Chris Roseborough also participated. Um, no, I can't. I'm sorry. I don't have time for that today. I'm curious what Chris Roseborough would say about it. I should try to interview him about it. That'd be interesting. Um, uh, but I, 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 I can't. God bless you. I can't. Uh, ratio of will and actions to outcomes in the world. What is the relationship between my will and my actions to outcomes in the world? <laughs> um, magical mystery. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's like 100% and zero at the same time. It's really cool. Transcendence, man. We live in a world in which God is fully in control of everything and he has given total control of yourself to you and everything you do has an equal and opposite reaction Yeah, um, out in the world. I don't know. 
Like mystery is the bigger issue here than the answer to the question. How comfortable are you with mystery? How comfortable are you with a God that's actually a God? Because if, if there's a God who's actually a God, then he's able to be and do things that don't make sense to you. Like let you totally have a quote unquote free will or free experience of will, maybe a better way to say it, with every action being justly and meetly responded to in a chaotic chance-driven environment where the actions of others are flowing through history and then hitting you upside the head you never saw it coming while also never ever not being in total control of it while also never ever not being using it all for good while also having evil corrupt it while also never intending evil to corrupt it while also always no evil was going to corrupt it while also always planning to save us from the evil which corrupted it by destroying the evil, while also never, never, ever intending evil at all. Got me. He's God. I don't know. What doesn't make sense? Believe in the Big Bang. Right. Good. That makes more sense. <laughs> I'm sorry. If you believe in the Big Bang, I'm glad you think it makes sense. I think it's the most ninny-poo uh, idea I've ever heard. And if you would just use Latin, it would at least be less ninny-poo sounding. But it really is Nini Poo, uh, Nini Poo idea that – so you're, you're – uh, what is it? Nothing exploded and became everything that was still without form and void that then accidentally ran into itself over and over again until it became something, which then still was just stuff and not sentient. But then completely unexplainably, it became sentient, but not really like us, like in an uncomplicated way that could not really reproduce. But then it was able to reproduce – and over reproducing accidentally and dying and struggling a lot for a very, very, very long time, it eventually made more complex sentient stuff that eventually, with a lot of death and pain and struggle, became us accidentally here able to think these electrochemical thoughts flying through our heads, which are themselves just more chaotic accidents that we now think make sense and assume to be the arbiters of truth so we can look at it and say well it must have all just exploded and showed up i'm so smart right i mean i just it just isn't a better answer <laughs> i don't i don't see how it's not a different mythology if you're going to call what i said about christianity mythology i don't see how yours is not a mythology it, it, it really is you want to talk about how you can you can splice genes and make the dog hair color change great yeah good for you uh cool i, I buy that yeah uh but the the rest of it man that the planets are all rocks that ran into each other like they were small rocks that hit each other and became bigger rocks. I still – maybe you got some math to show how that really happens, but I, really? Um, all right. So mystery. Whatever system of belief you have, you you have mystery in it. The question is how comfortable are you acknowledging that mystery? How comfortable are you testing that mystery according to things that are not mysterious? So why do I believe what I believe about the mystery of God's sovereignty over the fallen world and his handling of our evil through his elective grace you know, in Christ. I believe that because Jesus rose from the dead. That's why. There's a, there's a tomb in Judea where a guy that we murdered used to be. And then he came out and he still had the, the scars, the holes in his body. He said, yeah, so I've been telling you for like three years I'm God. And now I just saved y'all. 
And you 12 dudes, you're going to go and tell everybody this. And my promise to you is that this will awaken them. Ooh, see what I did there? Uh, this will awaken them to live forever. Some people will hate you. They'll kill you for it. But but some will believe. No, they'll live forever. And I'm leaving because this won't work unless I leave. Oh, you think it'd be better if I stayed? Well, then you wouldn't ever have the spirit work in this way to create the faith alone, which you need so desperately to have restored to you. So I'll be back. Not telling you when. Just kind of keep this word until I'm gone. I'm risen from the dead. See you later. Peace be with you. Right? Um, because of the historical veracity of that event and its tangible provability, way more tangible than the Big Bang. Dear heavens, uh, I then accept what that God, man, Jesus, and his teachers, prophets, and apostles say about our existence. And that goes into every direction, right? So then, when it comes to the question of my will, my action, outcomes in the world, and God's sovereignty of it, I let all the words just sit there. And the words sit there, like I said at the start. You have complete willful control of yourself granted your will i just hit my head as if my will is just my head it's not just your head it's your flesh <laughs> see what i did there uh, it's your flesh it's your emotions it's your it's your intuitions you could even at some level call it a little bit of um instinct that has that is itself and does what it will do. And it will always impact and make a reaction. But that doesn't mean that God has not planned and foreseen these things and intended them for good. Which is not by any means a reason to let yourself do whatever you want. Because his intent for good is that you would repent of the evil that you did that he turned for good. <laughs> and, and see his grace and strive to do better. And to, in, in that, learn to love the good and hate the evil. I, I just, I don't think it's that complicated. It just has to be believed, right? It, it's not like it's, it's not rocket science. Rocket science would be logical. This is, uh, this is declarative. You live in the world that you see. It responds. Act. It has rules. That's the world of the law. It's always that way. And then you have a God who says, I'm bigger than all of this. I can change it when I need to. And where I'm changing it is in giving you grace. I'm changing it by inverting all things in myself, my son, the one man, Jesus Christ, so that now you're no longer getting what you deserve entirely. And, and actually you never have because it's always foreshadowed or look forward to him. And uh, that reality is there behind what you see. And so you can know that everything that you do is not going to undo that reality. It's always going to be, be there. You can stand on the foundation of the grace of Jesus Christ, and you can make every effort to be good, knowing that even when you fail and do evil, it will not undo God's plan of salvation. And the one who hears that and says, great, I'm free to do evil. Well, you just didn't believe anything I said. That's all there is. That's not nothing, nothing wrong with what I said. You just are an unbeliever. So yeah, if you think, if you think that grace is a reason to love evil, then you do not believe in Jesus. Boom. Sorry. That's the way it is. Your, your condemnation is justly deserved. That's, that's your own issue. And it's not to say if you still do evil, therefore you don't believe in grace. No, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We're still going to do the evil, yeah? but you're not going to love the evil. You're not going to want to do the evil. And so 
the Christian life of mortification of the flesh, fighting back against the flesh, sanctification, being holy that is near Christ, the new obedience of hungering for goodness, the awakening of the mind to know the word of God is true, is one which stands upon that declarative election promise and then lives in the world of reactions fearlessly because we know that the promise does not connect to the actions. Your neighbor's life does. So you go out and you punch your neighbor in the face, they feel it. You give them some food to eat, they eat it, and they say thank you. And so the awakening drives us to want to do good here, even though we know that at the end of it, all our tears are already in his bottle, all the days are already written in his book. He foresees and knows every step we will take and even has set the works before us for us to do. There's no reason not to do that. It's a reason to believe you have an actual God, a real one. It's pretty cool, actually. Yeah. Ah. Did that even answer your question? I don't know. <laughs> uh, wait. Didn't we do that one already? Go away. I am five rows down. What does that mean? That's a strange thing. Boom. I don't even know what that is. And it won't delete. Oh, I'm saving it. I'm printing it. I'm going to go back and delete it. There goes delete. Why did the church give up having... Ah, this is an interesting question. Um, I was listening to a podcast from Higher Things, link below, where they're speaking about the communion, and it got me to thinking of this question. Why did the church give up the practice of having those who were not able to commune yet leave the room and then continue the service? Uh, the parts that spurred the thought are the last half of the, of the podcast he's, he's linking to. In summary, it was about the fact that Things are exclusive, tend to be more attractive, and after confirmation, First Communion, our sinful nature takes over and they no longer feel special. seems to me that maybe we gave up a good practice at the church. Well, I agree that it's a practice that we might do better to use again in some way. In fact, I'll even tell you, I've dreamed of this. Uh, I've dreamed about it here in Rockford, but it would take a new sanctuary <laughs> um, and, a, and a committed congregation that wanted to do it. But I'd love, I'd love, I'd love, I'd love to have church uh, be a non-communion service, liturgical, matins, morning prayer, whatever, and yet with a little more of a emphasis on the let's sing the easy songs and about a 45-minute long sermon. And then everyone comes out, shakes the pastor's hand, got a little brunch, a little coffee, and then... All the communicant members go back in and everybody else goes home and you have divine service. No, no preaching. That was done already. Right now we just finish the morning. Um, I think that'd be good. I think that'd be good. And it would make that initial service aimed at not only uh, didactic catechesis teaching, but it would be one that would be aimed at bringing people to that one, right? That you're coming to this and we're expecting visitors and we're going to be ready for visitors. And the other ones, kind of the, um, uh, the more intimate setting. But how we lose it, my understanding is that we lost it because the church became a public organization and eventually an official organization. And in that, like at a certain point, everybody in the culture was baptized and confirmed. Like there was nobody who wasn't. And so there wasn't this possibility of having random people who aren't Christians or who aren't Catholic <laughs> um, uh, showing up and, and being in the presence of the communion. And it got it got worse, right? It got to the point where you were in the presence and you watched it. You didn't even get to eat it. 
so it wasn't like it was all good on that end either. Uh, but it had a lot to do with my understanding is a lot to do with the official adoption of the church in the culture. That's how we lost it. Getting it back, I think would be great. But I, I don't know how you convince people to do this because the culture is strong. This is my whole complaint, right? The culture is stronger than we are at this point. And by that, I don't mean outside our walls. I mean inside our walls. What we believe church is that it's not is stronger than what we believe church is than it that it is. We, we have some of that too, but we don't have that strong enough to fight back against the things we believe that it is that it's not. Uh, those things we, we put greater weight on. Now, the earlier email mentioned Sunday school, Sunday school, uh, VBS. These are the things upon which the church stands or falls, the way we treat them at least. And they're not. They're not. Uh, what was the other? I was thinking about that recently. Oh, yeah, day school, Christian day school, right? Does the church stand or fall on having a Christian day school? And if you say the answer is no, it does not stand or fall on having a Christian day school. Does that mean you're against day schools? Does that mean you hate hate children? <laughs> right? Uh, like that reaction uh, is uh, – um, their reaction is one which has put too much weight on the day school and it has to defend itself by ad hominem attacking this, the statement that it's not necessary. So, um, I got distracted. You guys are all talking about Milwaukee. Uh, all your people in Milwaukee, in the Milwaukee area, true that. Ask the past 3.0 thing. Milwaukee, Milwaukee, David, Arizona. All you Milwaukee people, that's awesome. I like Wisconsin. I I really would like Wisconsin to annex Winnebago County. Could you do that for me? And you have to replace the government at Winnebago County when you do it because, man, Illinois. Not a place. All right. So uh, hopefully that answered that a little bit. Let's do one more, and then I will chat with you a bit, and then I think I'm going to be done for the day. Uh, Let's see. Delayed. Why is it so hard to ditch the Green Monster? I I don't know. Long time, I don't even know what the Green Monster is. We're going to find out. A long time viewer of your channel and I love to watch your videos for scriptural insight. Boom! And your personal take on variety of topics. Yeehaw. I tried searching your collection of videos on YouTube and on the World of Everlasting website, but I can't seem to find a video on jealousy. Yeah, probably not officially. I, I have struggled with jealousy all my life. Yeah, well, welcome to the club, man. Uh, and I feel as though it has stemmed from feelings of inadequacy and body image issues. Yeah, that could be the way it expresses itself. I would say it stems from narcissism, which we all have. And so we don't like anybody having what we don't have. We want it too. That's not fair. They got one. I didn't. That's not fair. Right? We think justice is that I get it. <laughs> if I get it and they don't, that's okay. But if they get it and I don't, that's not okay. Right? And that's how we define justice like as a, as a species. <laughs> right? Luther hits this in um, – golly, I think it's in the – it's, I'm sure it's in the large catechism, Ten Commandments, but I don't know if it's seven or nine and ten. Um, I'm not sure, but you know we have this glorious trait. All humans have this glorious trait. Oh, and maybe it's eight. It's, it's when he's talking about the name and, and uh, truth. We all we all have this glorious trait that we can't abide anybody to speak evil of us. But we got no problem speaking evil about everybody else, right? And it's the same thing. It's the same thing. Uh, so uh, it's so frustrating because I try to tell myself not to be jealous. Yeah, use the law, beat yourself up, right? Uh, whether it is of my sister or of my friends or random strangers who seem to have it all. I tell you, every time I see a certain kind of pickup truck, every time, my friends, you have a very jealous guy sitting right there saying, mm, it's not fair. I hear you. I tell myself, don't be jealous. You don't need it. That doesn't make it go away. 
doesn't make it go away at all. There are so many videos like 10 Steps to Stop Being Jealous. Don't listen to those. <laughs> it's not going to work. Uh, these are hollow attempts. That's the truth. Uh, what I guess my question is, is why do so many people deal with such intense jealousy towards other people, even when we, our lives are great in their own way? Because we're sinners. We are wretched. How do I... To go to the church, do, do they confess sins? Do they use these words? I am a poor, comma, miserable, comma, sinner. Now, we don't know what sinner means, do we? Yeah, I mean, we do, but we don't. By sinner, we mean wretchedly, depravedly evil to the core in utter self-driven conceit. Which means I'm miserable. All the time. Because of that. My self-driven conceit is misery. That I not only experience, but that I share with everybody. Like that's what I, I open my mouth and out comes death. Right? And the poverty being spoken of there is not that I don't have money. It's poverty of spirit. I confess. I'm a poor, miserable sinner. Other confessions. Unclean. Right? I'm unclean. Well, what does that mean? It's not I didn't take a shower this morning. It, it does have to do with, I have no proximity to God. I'm not near God. By myself, I am far from God. And that is unclean. That is, that is filthy. It is sick. It is diseased. And by this, then, I cannot save myself. Not just meaning like go to heaven, some magic happy place. Excuse me. It's not just going to some magic happy place. It means live in a world in which love is what I do. And everybody else has that too. That's why. You will never escape this in this life. Death gets you out of it. But actually, death without Jesus doesn't get you out of it. Death in Jesus. Falling asleep in Christ, you're free. You're free. You're in Christ. You're resting in him. And then at the resurrection, when he comes back, if we're alive waiting for that, right? Well, then, uh, bam, twinkling of an eye, and yeah, it's, it's all going to be dealt with. Until then, you got this thing around your neck. Imagine an old man. Like he's, he's, he's very old. So he's now lost a lot of weight. He's what? 80 pounds, 90 pounds, skinny, scrawny, bony, a little short, no hair, crackly looking face with teeth that are broken. And he's, he's bitter and spitty and just, yeah, you know, and, and, and he's your necklace. He is your necklace. You have him as a necklace. You wear him every day. You wake up. He's there spitting in your face. You go to bed. He's spitting in your face. He's shouting words at you about how bad you are. And it's true. Because you're him. And he's he's lobbing at you what you deserve from God. While also telling you to go do more that's going to get you more wrath deserved. That old man is with you all the time. It's called the flesh. We talked about it already, right? It's called your sinful nature. It's called the old Adam. The Bible talks about these things. This is not Luther's ideas. This is the Bible. The old Adam. The old man. We get rid of that because we don't like the word man because we're a bunch of feminists. Ah, whatever. Get mad at me for that if you like. Um, uh, so you're not going to get rid of this. And that's the reason why you're jealous. Now, like I was talking about a few moments ago, does that make it okay to be jealous? No. No, 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 no not at all. But neither does it give you the – does Christ saving you from that make it okay to be jealous? No. Does – Christ saving you from that make it so that you can overcome your jealousy and never be jealous? No. Does Christ saving you from that make it so you can look at it and call it what it is? Yes. 
I can call it what it is. A poor, miserable, wretched heart. And I can do it without fear. I can do it without having to cover it up. I can do it without having to make any excuses for it. Because the excuse has already been made. I'm covered by the blood of Jesus. And the mystery of this thing is that without ever having to tell myself, now don't go be jealous, Mark. That grace alone will raise from the dead a slightly, but immeasurably, like unmeasurably, slightly, less jealous human being tomorrow. I'm never going to see it. I'm never going to feel it. I'm always going to see more of the jealousy because I'm calling it what it is more and more. That's part of the growth of faith is to see just how poor and wretched I am. But everybody else will experience a slightly less jealous person. You can't. The moment you try to test it, you go back to the other side and you're back in the land of law and condemnation. But, but where the gospel is there, when, when it's, I call this what it is, and I'm standing on the cross of Jesus, so I'm fine with it. Like, God's got it covered. I'm sorry for it. I hate it. But I, I love Jesus more. I should say Jesus loves me more. Yeah. Um, standing there looking at Jesus, I can now see you too. And seeing you and me standing on Jesus, the result is just a little less hate. And the moment we try to turn that into something we control, again, we're, we're back in the realm of, of hate, back in the realm of the law. And it's not as though standing there on Jesus, there is no law. No, not, now we're, we're just not under the law. We're on Jesus, who is the law. But he's the law given to you as grace, not as, you know, he's, he's justification given to you as promise, not as demand. Grace not works. Why is it so hard to ditch the green monster even through prayer? Because prayer doesn't do that. Oh, for Pete's sake. People, people, my friends, stop. Stop with the magic prayer. Stop it. Prayer is not magic. <laughs> I can't stand it. I want to talk about the idolatry in the church these days. Our prayers. Ah. Prayer is going before God as who you are fearlessly. That's what prayer is. That you are, you are the five-year-old who is not afraid to go to your father. That's prayer. That's all it is now. You know God's listening. But it doesn't make the Bible go away. You don't get to say, dear God, please change what the Bible says. And he'll be like, oh, I love you enough. I'll do that. He doesn't do that. So it's, 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 excuse me. It's stupid to pray for things that he has said, man, I'm not going to do that. Like, that's dumb. Don't pray for that. <laughs> And bring your bring yourself alongside of what he said he will do. He's not going to take away your experience of sin. He's not going to refuse to leave a thorn in your flesh. Paul, three times I pleaded with him, take it away. No. Then you would stop believing in me. You need my grace, Paul. And so you got to, I don't want you to believe in your perfection. I want you to believe in my grace. And for that, I must have you suffer your own sin. You must suffer your own sin and call it what it is. And know that I'm sufficient, that Jesus is sufficient. So prayer's not going to take away, prayer doesn't take away anything. It is true. God does answer prayers. But not because prayer does it. God loves you. And so when you ask for things, he'll give them to you. But man, have we turned prayer into self-justification or what? It's just ridiculous. I love you. I'm not mad at you. It's, this is a, a wide, wide thing. Believe in the power of prayer. Well, 
You believe in white magic. Stop it. Stop it. Let God be God. And ask him for what you need, but stop trying to twist his arm. He, he turns a deaf ear to that kind of stuff. He lets it get worse and he hurts you so that you'll repent and come to him a little more with a, thank, a thanksgiving. <laughs> the real prayer about jealousy should be, thank God I'm saved from my jealousy. Right? Thank you, Jesus, that you have blessed me in spite of my jealousy. If you would be so kind to let me have less jealousy, that would be great. But I know the only way I'm going to be delivered from evil is to be delivered from a, a land where temptation happens, right? So lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. It means bring the end of the world. And until then, forgive me my trespasses, as I forgive those who trespass against me, because I know they're going to keep coming. They're going to keep coming. <sighs> my question is, why do some people deal with intense jealousy towards people even when we live our lives? Uh, yeah, because you never have enough. You drink, you're never satisfied, you eat, you never have your fill, you put... Your labor and your money in a bag with holes. I have struggled with jealousy all my life. It's frustrating because I try to tell myself to be jealous. Video. Oh, it's, it's a repeat of the same thing. Yeah. Yes, I get it. You're right. I, I have struggled with sin my whole life. And I try to tell myself, stop being a sinner. <laughs> Won't work. What's wrong? <laughs> right? Oh, so begin, begin with believing this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Yeah. Start with that. Stand on that. Stand on that. Should I attend a Roman Catholic funeral? Um, yeah, sure. Why not? Should you commune there? No. Uh, friend, colleague, died. this is probably too late, but Roman Catholic, uh, they often will have a mass. Yeah. You attend the funeral. You don't go to mass and listen carefully to the sermon. Expect him to preach law or to preach the guy into paradise with some, you know, um, he was a good person. So he, you know, he, he's with God now thing and be really grateful if you get a biblical, uh, sermon on Jesus, uh, it's unlikely, but you just, you go and you show respects, right? Show respects to the body. He's still a Christian. He's still baptized. He's going to rise from the dead unless he was a complete pagan. Uh, so, you know, thank God for that and, um, enjoy the funeral, uh, for, for what that's worth. Enjoy is the wrong word, but all right, so uh, that's interesting. Methodism is kind of close to Lutheranism. Yeah, no, it's not. <laughs> what kind of Methodism are you talking about? What kind of Lutheranism? They think it is. There's no question. Methodists think it is. Uh, it's like Calvinists think it is. And then and then we pull out closed communion. You're like, that's evil. <laughs> well, see, we're different. <laughs> uh, we're really different. Uh, and real Methodism did have a liturgical piece to it, but not really. Um, not not as much. They just were kind of trapped in their culture, just like today's Methodism, which is the evangelical revivalism. That, that's the real Methodism. The United Methodist Church isn't Methodism. Uh, that's that's just liberal nonsense, liberal paganism. Uh, uh, so, I don't know. Um, yeah, they're so different. Their, their, their supposition is so different. And... Methodism is, is inherently individualistic and biblical Christianity is inherently corporate. Again, this is why close communion is there and why it doesn't make sense to anybody in our age is because we, we come at it with an individualistic question. Why can't I? And it's because we is the answer, right? <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, didn't mean to hit you hard there, David. Thank you for watching. Uh, all right, so, uh, closing notes, 
February fourteenth. Nah, it can't be a it can't be a Valentine's Day. February eighth. Without flesh. New book coming out. It is about the Lord's Supper. It is about the church dying without the Lord's Supper. It's about why our churches are dying and how we can really maybe track this to a certain argument about the word is a long time ago. And we're just we're living it out. We're living out the, the fruit of that thing. And even us Lutherans are like, well, we have the Lord's Supper. It's like, well, do you? Do we? I mean, I know we do. Those of us who know we do, know we do. But do we know we do? Hmm, that's the issue. So uh, Without Flesh, coming out in February. You can pre-order it now on Amazon.com. If you look for a name, Jonathan M. Fisk or Jonathan Fisk, you'll find the author page, and it is there. Uh, so uh, my newsletter, I'm putting snippets of it uh, for you know for you to see every week. So if you want to if you want to see some of it, go ahead and get on my newsletter list. Subscribe to that. That'll be in the link below. Uh, uh, you can always pick up Broken or Echo. That'd be marvelous. I'm amazed that Broken continues to sell so well, and Echo has never sold as well. And I get part of that had something to do with YouTube and and the way things happened back then. But Echo's a better book. Uh, I got my my uh, biannual. Uh, payout from CPH, and it's, it's not that much. It's a little something. It's not that much, and it's stunning to me. Uh, Echo is still selling better than Broken, but barely, barely. And Echo's only been out a year and a half, two years. So it's it's, it's amazing to me uh, that, that Broken goes does that well. So if you've read Broken or you're reading Broken, you're giving Broken away, and you haven't looked at Echo, you're crazy. Echo's a better book by a million years. A million years. Broken's all right. It's all right. It's good. It does good things. It hits people sometimes where they need to be. But it also... Um, uh, Gene Veith said it won't endure, and he's right. It won't endure. Uh, and Echo could. Echo should. It's better. Um, so pick one of those up. If you have not already, you can always support me on Patreon. That helps keep all this stuff going. If you don't support me on Patreon, I'll never be able to fix my microphone problem. Although it worked pretty well right here today. It's a little in my face, but it worked, it worked pretty well. Um, and I know I have more. Twitter, eh, whatever. Facebook, eh, whatever. Uh, uh, Merry Christmas? Not yet. <laughs> uh, I know there's one more announcement I have to give you. But I don't know. Podcast. Uh, if you if you know the, the YouTube stuff, yeah, and you don't know the podcast, there is the podcast, which exists at – you can find all this at madchristian.com. Redfist.com. There you go. Uh, <laughs> um, you can find the podcast there, and there you'll get my sermons. I guess you're getting that on YouTube now these days too. Um, there's other bonus content that shows up there sometimes. And then that once a week, the actual podcast, we're talking with Will Whedon this week about uh, liturgy initially, about his new podcast, uh, Word of the Lord Endures. And uh, we do get into some carnivore stuff, but that's mostly going to be in the second hour where we dig into the madness of eating nothing but meat. Um, that's That's crazy. Don't get mad at me. It's just... <laughs> When it works, it works, you know. So, yeah. all right, cool. Thanks for hanging out and uh, being with me today. I appreciate you guys. Don't wallow in the muck. Oh, this is insane.